Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am in Austin, Texas with an in-studio guest today. I'm joined by Ted Oakley, founder and managing partner of Oxbow Advisors. In this episode, we discuss Ted's new book, Stay Rich with a Balanced Portfolio. We also got his economic outlook and why we are likely headed toward recession. He has more than 40 years of experience of advising high net worth clients, so we got his take on what these investors are doing with their money today when they're bracing for these turbulent times ahead. I really enjoyed my time with Ted. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Ted Oakley, managing partner of Oxbow Advisors and author of multiple books, your newest being Stay Rich with a Balanced Portfolio. It is great to have you back on the show, Ted, and it's also great to see you and be with you in person. Thanks, Julia. I've followed your success this year, and I'm really happy for you. Well, you've been part of that success having you on the show, and I'm grateful to have you back, and you're my second in-person guest, so this is a real treat. Um, I want to start where we usually start with all of our guests on the show, and that is to get your updated macro outlook, the big picture view for you today, uh, whether it's the economy or the markets, you can do both, and take as much time as you'd like to set the table. Mm. Well, I, I think, you know, we've been defensive since really the beginning of 22. Uh, and so we're as defensive today as we've ever been. I would say we were about as this defensive in early 2000 uh, than we are now. And we have, if you look at all our strategies, this, this is a reason why. We think we're just now coming into the period where you're really going to start to see some damage, not only in the economy, but in the markets over the next two to three quarters. And you're starting to really see it in the marketplace today. I felt like um, the big seven, magnificent seven stocks, I felt like all those peaked in July. Felt like that all along, which it looks like they have. They're all down from that point. So for us, we have a lot of liquidity. We're making good money on it. We have treasury. So, you know, we're making over 5% on it, which will allow you time to wait on things to see if when they get better. But I've been through these long cycles before, and most people in the business today probably haven't. But when you're in a long cycle like this, you have to really know where you are because what happens is you keep going a little bit lower, then you go, then you rally up, and it looks like everything's okay. Then you go a little bit lower. We had in January 2000 till really March of 03, we probably had seven or eight of those. Mm-hmm. And every time people thought, this is it, I have to do it. But when you're in an elongated market like that, you have to really be careful about where you decide. You have to get your companies cheap. That's a problem today. Most companies aren't that cheap. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this on the economy, though, because we had the GDP, the GDP report. And all of the headlines I saw were resilience of the economy. It's red hot. It's, it's booming. From where you sit, what do you make of the economic picture? Well, Julia, I think most people don't realize, uh, and my good friend David Rosenberg, who I know you know, and I agree on this, and that is normally right before you have the poor quarters, you have one last gasp. If you look at those numbers underneath, here's what you'll find. The two things that pushed the GDP this past quarter were consumers, and then if you look at consumers, what they did is they decreased their savings and they increased their credit card debt. Those two things allowed them to take one more swipe at let's do something fun and buy some stuff. Second thing was government. Everything that got passed nine months ago, 10 months ago, 
that money's just about run out. But those two things push the GDP. If you look at business, it's virtually nothing. And so that tells us that those two things, which are going to die out here, will when you roll into the next two quarters, probably one we're in and the first and second quarter, I think that's where you'll see that you'll really start to see the weakness. We're already seeing it, but uh, credit card delinquencies, payments on credit card payment delinquencies, they're all going up. And so it's sort of a matter of time is what it amounts to. Mm-hmm. So I imagine, too, it's just like you have to look under the hood. It's not just what all the headlines are out there. It's like really look and see what's actually going on in yeah, the economy. Because you'll see headlines and what people look at and it's... It, it, but they haven't looked anywhere else, you know, and that's why I've given you those numbers underneath. That's why it came in like it did. Yeah. Well, I like what you wrote in your book. You said Wall Street is in the business of giving you good news, of keeping you hopeful. That's how it makes money. A truly responsible financial advisor, however, is in the business of ensuring you keep your wealth. So I think we should also bring that up because mm. you have a great new book out. You work with so many clients, and I imagine they probably have a lot of things that are top of mind from them right now. Can you kind of frame up what folks are asking you about these days? Well, they don't mind being safe. I will tell you, people with a lot of money right now, and most of our people have a lot of money, but they, they don't mind being safe, okay? Uh, you might think that they feel like they're missing out, but as, as I told all of them, if you look at, you know, the NASDAQ is still 16% below it was in that January 22. The S&P is still down 11% from where it was. We're not in a bull market. Now, were we in a rally market? Yeah, for four months. And I think most of our investors understand that. We've said, hey, look, our number one thing is preservation of capital first because our biggest years are always the years off of the lows in the market, not because we're real brilliant, but because we have a lot of money usually. We have liquidity. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling people without liquidity, you won't be able to participate in any opportunity. But most, I think people uh, think about what's on their mind today is, Lousy politics, honestly, all the way around. Secondly, world affairs, what's going on in the world, particularly Mideast, different things. Um, and they so they have a lot of things coming at them at one time. And I, they, I hate to say it, but I, most of them have sort of a negative outlook on that part uh, of things. And uh, it, that's been a problem because they— if they have a negative look on that, they just don't have a lot of hope in those things. And so it, it kind of bleeds over into their investments. So being safe hasn't affected them too much. I think they're fine. Yeah. So you're right. You all um, serve high net worth clients. You mentioned they like they like being safe right now, but they also have a negative outlook on what's happening in the world. It is interesting to kind of get this perspective that we might not always get. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just share a bit more? I want to hear more on Well, what happens with people with a lot of money, and you'll notice this about them, is they, they're real savvy. And so they know when things are really slowing down. So they start to, not, not all of them, but the ones that do well, understand that now, okay, I'm not going to do as many real estate deals. I'm not going to invest as many private companies. I'm going to start to be more careful on what I do. I'm going to let what I have invested, you know, over the last 10 or 12 years, I'm going to let that stuff play out, do sales, whatever comes up with it. But I'm going to be reticent to really get aggressive on new deals of any kind. And that includes everything, oil and gas, real estate, stocks, bond, everything. So I find them more and more like, especially now, when we flipped into this 5% short-term money, mm-hmm. most investors were like, you know what? That's pretty good. Yeah. I think I'll take that. 
and I'll just wait and see how everything comes out. And, I, and most people don't remember this, but the 5% level in the Fed funds rate and the 10-year Treasury is what broke the market in 2007. That was the peak. And it rolled in a recession after that. And I think we're on that same path right now. Wow. So um, I take it, so when you say short-term T-bills for folks? Yeah, less than a year. Okay. But most of ours are like, uh, you know, people, you didn't have this 10 years ago, but now you have like a floating Mm -hmm. rate U.S. Treasury. It floats. It resets every Monday on the 90-day rate. So you can't lose anything on the principal, even if you want to get out of it. And it's like having a guaranteed money market fund with the U.S. government that you want to pay, that you pay nothing for. <laughs> it's for, So you just put money in it and it resets every Monday. So as rates have gone up and we've had a lot of money in it, you know, probably a billion dollars yeah, over the last year. And it just really keeps good. on going up, see. Now, it maybe it's peaking, I don't know, but uh, you don't have principal risk. So uh, it's been a good place for us to park. But we own some one and two year paper too. But, but uh, people are getting that kind of yield. They're like, you know, I'm okay. Yeah, I heard um, Jeffrey Gunlock call, um, called it T-bill and chill, and I thought that was pretty clever. Well, he's got a good point. Yeah, that was pretty clever. Yeah. I want to go back to the point you just made um, about the 10-year mm-hmm. back in 2007. Can you explain that one more time? That was interesting. Well, if you go run a graph on mm-hmm. the 10-year and the Fed funds rate, they were raising rates into that 07 period is what they were doing. in the ten- So Fed funds got up to a little over 5 or 5, 5, 5 and a quarter. The 10-year got up to 5%. And there's always a breaking point in these in these areas. You, you never know which one it is, but that was a breaking point, and that was in the that was coming into the early fall of '07. Well, it rolled over, and people don't remember this. It rolled over, and in '08, they started lowering rates. It was too late. See, we were already in the mud at that point, so it, was, it didn't work. And a similar thing happened to me in 1987. 1987, the five-year bond got up to yield 10 percent. And it was there only about a week, maybe seven or eight days, but it caused the market crash because people said, you know what, if I can get 10% for five years, why don't we in the stock market? Yeah. And so you walk up and you got Black Monday. Interesting. Okay. So you, you would think that's kind of anal- analogous to what we're seeing now with the 10-year? Similar, yeah. So walk me through the dynamics there because I'm definitely not an expert and a lot of mm. folks are trying to learn on this show. Where do, where do you see the 10-year headed? And it does, do people just, just will people mm-hmm. want to get out of stocks and get into the tenure or what's well? Going I don't on? know about the tenure. One of the problems with going 10, 20, 30 years is you you lose you lose the conservative side. It becomes more of a volatile asset. Mm-hmm. And I can believe me, if you own a twenty year treasury and rates go down just one percent, you're going to make a lot of money. I mean, on the principle of it, mm-hmm. it's going to go up a lot. The problem is on the 10-year here, let's just say we're going to a new stable level of inflation, and it's not two. Let's just say it's three to four. Well, normally on the 10-year, you're going to get one and three-quarters percent over whatever your inflation rate is. So let's just say it's three. That means you don't have a whole lot of room, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're still not into that mode where unless we could get inflation down. Now, the way to hedge it is to at least for us, at least, we own in a conservative income account, just nothing but bonds. We'll own 85% or so that's real short, and then we'll have a little 10%, 12% in long paper, 30-year bonds. We're down in them, mm-hmm. but not enough to offset what we get. we're getting now in the other 85%. That's how you hedge that right. so it doesn't hurt you. If you People in bond funds in general, 
they're really getting hurt this last two years. Right. A lot. And that was because of the rate increases and the right. prices fall when you when, ri- yeah. when rates rise, the price of the bonds fall. And a lot the, of the coupons out there then were like 1% and 2%, mm-hmm. and they kept on buying them. We wouldn't buy them that far out. I mean, we, we would, it was hurting us on the short run because we were only getting half point. Mm-hmm. It was not much. And, okay. and you know, that. So, um, but what happened is they kept buying the bonds, the funds did. So that now, if you look at all those bonds, if I have a 1% bond or 2% bond and I have to compete with a 5% coupon, obviously my price is going to be down a lot. And so you're seeing a lot of bonds that are down 35, 40% because the coupon's real low and they can't compete any, you know, they have to get it priced relative to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Does it does it matter? Like, okay, so I, this is, I'm just trying to learn. Does it matter if someone's like, okay, I'm just going to hold it for that period of time? Or is it because people mm-hmm. want to get out of the funds? I just, I would... Well, it matters in this respect. I think people uh, miss the point. I mean, I've had people tell me, well, if I could get 4% tax-free for 30 years, I'm good with that. Well, first of all, they're going to, all tax-free bonds are callable. Mm-hmm. So even if you were right 10 years, they could take it away from you. The treasury is not callable if you want something that's, mm-hmm. you know. The problem is this, and that is you have no idea what's going to be happening next 20 or 30 years. So if, if let's just say we go through a period like 1966 or 67 to 1982 where inflation is all over the board and everything like that, well, you, you've just set yourself up for a failure. And the reason being is when I first got into business, and if these widows or widowers would come in, in the late seventies, they'd have bought bonds in the sixties, and they were all down forty or forty-five percent. Good paper, good bonds, but now they're living in a world that's yielding five or six or seven or eight. I mean, four or five points over what they had, and they and, and they're stuck. That's my point. You can't afford to get stuck in this business. Mm, yeah, definitely don't don't want to get stuck. Yeah. Um. So all right. So. It gets just given this environment. How you mentioned like wanting to be, I guess they want to be more like short term. Mm-hmm. How else are folks kind of thinking about positioning? And I guess like more that macro picture is that the concerns about inflation remaining persistent. Um, what is kind well, of well? They know it's it? out there. I, you know, you, you no matter what the government tells them, you know, they know when they go and just. They know when we go to the grocery store. They know when to get mm-hmm. the car worked on. They know when they have people do services at their house. You know, they're all going up. Like every everything you do, they want more. And so it's they know it's there. And uh, it's interesting. You know, one of the questions I ask people sometimes is if if I could guarantee you a return over inflation with no risk the rest of your life. What would you want? You know, and here's here's how they don't think about it correctly. You should say two or three percent because if if it's indexed to inflation, you're just fine. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them still say they want seven or eight percent, which is never going to happen, mm-hmm. by the way. And so you're trying to you try to get a feel for how they really really think, you know. But right now, I think people, yeah, they're they're concerned about all of that, and they're concerned about where the money goes. I mean. Sometime, Julia, do this exercise. Okay. Spend a, go, go spend a million dollars a day and go figure out how many years it will take you to spend a trillion dollars. 
They'll blow your mind. But if I'm I'm right, I think it's around twenty seven hundred years. Okay. Okay. Now I wish I, wish I had a million dollars okay. today. <laughs> we're we're thirty three trillion dollars in debt just at the government level now. Yeah. Okay. So somewhere in there, there's going to be a problem. I don't know where it is, but there's going to be some problem someday because you you can't choke down the economy. You can't. I mean, I know you interviewed Lacey Hunt, and Lacey mm-hmm. will tell you that if you keep if you keep putting all those resources back into paying for debt, you kill your economy. And I think that's what's happening. Yeah. And it also makes you think, like, looking out globally, a lot of other countries have the same problem. So we're like, the, oh, yeah. we're the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry pile. <laughs> I mean, there's 380 or $90 trillion of debt worldwide. Just in the U.S., we're about a, a 120, 100, if you take everything. We're 110, 120 million, a trillion total debt. That's companies, real estate, everything. Um, and it's more money than most people can fathom in their head. They just don't know. Yeah, they just don't know. Well, I want to bring up some more points from your book. And one of those being um, about investors. Like I say, there's no holy grail. I know you talk about that. Uh-huh. And most investors get in trouble after doing well in something and deciding they found some unbeatable investment. Um, so... <laughs> I want to hear more on this because it sounds like in investing, it can be easy to kind of have biases based on like what did well in the past. You know, investor bias is one of the worst things you can have because what happens is you you think, I'll give you a good example. We work with a lot of people that sell a company and they get a lot of money. And since they start out with nothing and now they have $50 million, let's say, they're, the idea for them is that, you know, I am actually pretty smart. And they are, by the way, but they're not as good at everything else as they were in their own business. In most cases, I'm not saying every case, but they don't have the ability to stand back and say, you know, I need to go slow, take it easy, and look into these things. And they're biased because they did so well in their own business. Or we have people, particularly second, third generation wealth, where they, for some reason, they hit a lucky break and they catch something just right, make a lot of money. That's almost a kiss of death for them because what happens is they will start doing other things like that in high-risk situations and go all the way back to where they were, you know. Mm-hmm. And so their bias kills them on that because they they think that, you know, uh, one of the reasons we stay so humble is because, number one, we know we're not the smartest people in the world, but we're going to work harder than most people. But the second thing is because I know how big the – big the investment landscape is. You're playing against a lot of smart players. And so you need you need to realize where you are and really take the time to not get hung up on things. And that's what happens in those biases, really. Hey there, I just want to quickly interrupt the video and just say thank you. Thank you so much for coming to this channel and choosing to watch this interview. I hope that you are enjoying it and I appreciate you visiting the channel. If you like what you see, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything. It's totally free and it will keep you up to date on all of my interviews. I post two interviews a week with some of the most incredible people in in finance and investing and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guests. If you already are one of my subscribers, thank you so much. I cannot express to you how much your support means to me. I am incredibly grateful that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about and you being there week after week, it not only gives me that energy, but 
it just gives me that faith to keep going. And it means everything to me. And I love seeing you all in the comments section. I love interacting with you. I love interacting with you on email or social media. I just love hearing from you all. And I just appreciate your support so much. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to do something that I just love. So I just want to say thank you and appreciate you subscribing. All right, back to the interview. You know what? Um, just like a bit of a segue. I don't know if I've ever asked you, Ted, like how how you got into the business and and um, the work that you do today. I don't think I've ever asked you that. Well, I always had to work. I came from a really extremely poor family, but um, but one, I, I put myself through school, through college, and I got I was working for a company in Dallas called Anderson Clayton Foods. And for anybody who knows anything about the food business, it's a low margin business. The people that only make money, but everybody else does not make mm-hmm. a whole lot of money. And um, I had really done a great job at one of their products and double the sales in a year. And I was a young guy. Um, and they offered me a 2% raise. And I said, no, well, that won't work. I, you know, I've really never been afraid of a lot of things. But so I said, and a friend of mine, everybody's always helped me. A friend of mine said, hey, uh, I have a guy that runs all of the West for Merrill Lynch. And I bet if you interviewed with him, he'd send you, you know, you could go work in New York. And I, and for me, that was like, like what, you know, I mean, yeah. I, and so, and I love numbers. I'm a, I'm a math whiz. So uh, it was a perfect business for me. So I was lucky. I was, a, did well on the exams and everything to show mass quotient. So I went to work, lived in New York, and that's how I got started with it. Came back to Dallas um, with Merrill Lynch, but ended up buying into a private company, which we sold in uh, 83. And then ever since then, we've had our own company. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been helped along the way by a lot of good people. Yeah. You mentioned um, you're, you mentioned that you grew up in abject poverty. You grew up in, in Georgia. Can you, if you don't mind, would you share with us some more about, you know, growing up and, and what that experience was like for you? Well, if, if anybody out there could realize this, I grew up on the Georgia-North Carolina border and it's, it was red dirt hillbillies. That's what we were. We, we didn't have paved roads and where I was, the highway might've been paved, but, um, you know, we had a well on the back porch. We, we we didn't have running water when I was a little guy. And we had an outhouse because it was nobody had any money. And and so it was a, it was it was a, it was a, it was a I wouldn't say it was an unhappy life, but it was a hard life because, you know, you don't have nothing. So I got my first job. I was six years old. I started uh, selling TV guides to around I'd walk around on Saturdays and sell these things and but I always had a job after that and and through a a lot of different places um my father was a minister but he was a Pentecostal minister so you know it was hard it's not the most educated family and and so I had I had to move on from that which is okay it's not a disparaging remark but I had to get educated I had to do my own stuff and that probably had an impact on me because I can appreciate what it takes to to accomplish something and, and put some wealth together. Yeah, hard work and education. Yeah. So was education the way out for you? Or did, did you have any influences or, or um, influences or along the way from folks? You know, or? I always had a, for some reason, I always had, always had somebody in my life that was not my family that was helping me out. And I had three or four gentlemen and one lady over the, over the course of my life that, 
really impacted me to uh, and it helped me. You know, I'm, I'm an achiever, but they made a lot of difference. You know, I left. You know, I left. I basically left home five or six days after I got out of high school and never went back. But not, I took care of my parents, don't get me wrong, but I was gone and I was on my own. Uh, and so um, I can appreciate it. And it's these kids today, you know, if you work your way and you're having to work in college and do different things, I know what you're going through, okay? Um, but you can get there. You know, a lot of people around will help you. And uh, that's what happened with me. It was just, it really was, it's mostly just hard work, really. Yeah. Well, I know you also do incredible work um, in the community as well, and especially with um, with with kids who are in, in foster yeah. situations as well. Would you share some of that? Because I, th- I think it was really inspiring hearing you talk about that. Well, uh, 25 years ago, uh, the foundation down in South Texas, which is 32 or 33 counties, one of the things I found out about the foster care system is it has a lot of red tape. So we wanted a way to increase the self-esteem of a lot of those foster kids. So we set up the way our foundation works is, and it, it's a 501c3. When I first was going to do it as a private foundation, I, I know this IRS agent had to be a foster child because she said, hey, if you'll do a 501c3, you can get more money. And I said, well, okay. She said, I'll prove it in two, day, two weeks. <laughs> All right. So I did. I put together a board, and that was a long time ago, 1996. But what happened was uh, these kids have too much red tape. And so what they do with us is they want something. We want to fulfill exactly what they want. Number one, the girls want a certain kind of jeans, certain kind of hair, certain kind of dress, certain kind of whatever it is. The boys want certain kind of baseball glove, computer, whatever they want. We do that in 48 hours. That's the key. So they have a way to build their self-esteem and, and they, they can come back and get more Whatever, and so we help, uh, and then we started in, in the Central Texas out here, Austin, sixteen years ago. We'll help ten thousand kids between the two of them. It's very wow. rewarding, and I and these kids have it a lot rougher than I ever had it. Believe me, mm-hmm. a lot yeah. rougher. Helping their self esteem is so important. I imagine folks who are watching, listening. Um, you have to let them know how they can get involved or, or help or give back because it really is. Well, important our, our foster, uh, our foster, all, both of them are just called foster angels. Foster angels of Central Texas and foster angels of South Texas. They're they're very hands on. They do the right thing. Most of our money goes to the kids. That was an important thing for me. I wanted the kids to get the money, and so you know, when you start these foundations, you have to put a lot of money in the first four or five years because people watch you. They want to see if you're going to fail or not. And I was always determined. I don't care how much money I had to put in. I, I knew we would make them work. Yeah. And so it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things is to always, um, you know, pay it back um, when you have great, uh, gained great success. Um, going back, though, to the work that you do, Oxbow uh-huh. Advisors, and you mentioned that you write a lot of books. Uh-huh. Um, why did you write this one in particular? What And you, you write them to the point, too. <laughs> I like that. Well, we we wrote this one because one of the things I found during this period, particularly between Pre, right pre-COVID all the way until through 21 was everybody was out of balance. They were doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. They were chasing all these unicorn stocks. They were chasing SPACs, NFTs, all the coins out there. You know, we got 8,800. Everybody talks about Bitcoin, Ethereum, but there's 8,800 more. Yeah. Okay. And they're all bad, by the way, the other ones. I mean, I'm, I'm not— You don't even like Bitcoin, right? Well, I, I didn't want to do like it. I'm just saying for us, it's not a good investment. Yeah. It doesn't cash flow. 
And we, we like cash flow of some form, all right? That doesn't mean it doesn't do well. It could very well do well. I could see the circumstance where it could. It's just not what we do, you know, and I don't knock people that do it. I'm just saying the other 8,800 coins that were just devised out there, they're all down a lot. Um, and see, that was all on that part of that NFT, everything that was going on at the same time. And so I thought, you know, this whole thing's out of balance here. And these people are all into these magnificent seven stocks. That's all they own. And I tried to write something to say, you know, if you go back and look 100 years ago at people that had a million dollars, okay, if they had just managed, they didn't need to beat the market. They just need to have an average middle-of-the-road return between then and now, and their whole group of families would all be billionaires. But they didn't. They either overemphasized something or didn't emphasize enough. In other words, they were too conservative are too aggressive, and either way, it burned them up. You know, they over time, it's a, it's a slow thing. And I just try to get over to people. If, if you have a lot of money, if you want to stay rich, you got to be balanced. That may mean I've got a certain amount in real estate, a certain amount in oil and gas, a certain amount in private companies, a certain amount in stocks and bonds. But I know uh, uh, one of the things I did, I wrote a book entitled The Psychology of Staying Rich, and I interviewed a lot of billionaires. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found out about them is they all had a lot of real estate, interesting enough, for most of them had real estate. Uh, and one of the other things is an, an average investor wouldn't do this. They always carried about 35% or more liquid cash in that part of their investment process. It was stocks or bonds or whatever. It didn't bother them. And the reason they did, you ask them, every one of them is because once or twice a decade, we get a chance to really clean up because we've got money. And it's interesting. If you have a smaller investor, say, that has a million or $2 million, they want that last dollar working every minute, which is not correct, okay? They need to understand that you need to be a little more balanced than that because you're going to go through these ups and downs. And, you know, you can be 100% real estate or you can be 100% oil and gas. It's probably not a good idea. I think you need to own something of a lot of different things. I'm a big believer in real estate. Um Now's not the time, but really, it, it's it's a, one of the great investment vehicles for sure. And we've owned a lot of it over the years, but uh, not much now, you know. Yeah. Well, what what do you want to do? Uh, we mentioned earlier what y'all are doing now, but is it a lot of our folks just kind of waiting for opportunities right now? If they like, well, they can cash? afford to wait now because they get paid now. You you know you when they we spent ten years there where the the rate that's now five was a quarter of a point, so you couldn't really. You had to do something, and that's why they ran the stocks up and they ran the bond rates down. They did all of these crazy things that came to market through Wall Street, the SPACs, the you know the coin, everything. And uh, and you look at all of these companies that are public today that don't make any money. They make no money. They lose money. And that's just people have to realize that's not a good way to balance yourself out, you know, Um We've always felt like in the balance side, if you didn't have a, what we call a base capital on one side, investment capital on the other, if you've got base capital, meaning you can live to play another day, survival, okay, mm-hmm. then you can afford the emotional ups and downs of the investment side because you know you have this over here. And if a lot of people don't have that, and so when it gets into this roller coaster, they either do the wrong things, that are chase it at the highs, want to do more. 
or they want to sell it at the lows because they don't have a base over here to fall back on. And that's what we try to get them to do. We have base capital, investment capital. Mm-hmm. When did you get that kind of realization or unlock like in your own career? Did you ever come across that with like this getting that you were talking about the psychology but yeah. getting that psychology right i imagine well we're, i'll tell you how it happened uh since you don't if you don't grow up with any money then you really hold your money tight when you when you're when you i didn't have i always made sure i didn't have a lot of debt but the the point was and here i'll give you my era as a young man okay uh i wouldn't be aggressive enough in stocks because i thought you know um I probably can't afford to lose money. I could have afforded to lose some, but in the, what got me over that and which really laid the foundation for my company is this. I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make sure over here in this base capital I've got plenty of money and then I can trust the risk. I can trust it, okay? Cuz I wouldn't trust it. Mm-hmm. See? Cuz I'm like you I might lose it all, but you know, I th- I know how people think. But so once you have the base side then on the investment side, no matter, it can go up and down, and it's going to, generally going to go up over time. But when you get in those down drafts, it doesn't make you think, hey, I've got to really batten bat down the hatches because I'm going to lose everything. It takes all that away so you can deal with the emotional. Emotion is the, is the biggest thing in investing, emotions. And if you can control that, you're home. Explain that for folks who are yeah. watching and listening. Well, People don't understand them, themselves well enough. I wrote a little book entitled Your Money Mentality, and what it was about was you need to know yourself. You need to know what makes you go. One of the things that we spend so much time on, a new investor with, that's just sold a company or something, is what makes those people tick? What Give me give me an idea about how you feel about things. And it's not one of those 20-question things you fill out. It's not that. It, it's other questions about how they feel about life and their kids and where the money goes and what are the plans. There's a lot of things that go into that. And so what what you want to do in that case is make sure they know themselves well enough to know that if you get into this situation, this this is I always ask them, so how 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 do you react how do you react in two thousand and then oh eight, oh nine? Tell me, tell me just give me some particulars of what you did. Okay. Then I get a pretty good feel. If you know, they say, "Well, both times, you know, I just got spooked and sold out." Well, we got to now. See, we're going to have to fix that some way or another because they're in the they they were in the wrong spread some way or another. Then if they say, "I said, well, what do you do? Give me an idea of what you did in twenty one, or like oh seven when the when your people are chasing stocks." Yeah, I stayed fully invested. We went on, we, you know, da da da, put more money in or whatever. Then I know they've got to buy some. On the other side, and so that's what I mean by understanding who they are. A lot of people in our industry, unfortunately, do they all do the same things? They give them a 20, 20 question questionnaire. How do you feel if the market if you go down twenty percent? Well, they can't really answer that. I'll just tell you. Yeah, just a questionnaire they give, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> when you this. get into it with people, I've had people tell me, "Hey, I'm really." Because no one's going to truthfully answer, right? <laughs> well, and the other problem is that you have to ask them more questions than that because and find out what they did before. Because what happens with them if they say, "I've had people tell me, you know, I'm I'm really aggressive. I want to always I want to be more lean more toward equity." Okay, 
then you get into the first bear market and they just completely spook on you. And you're like, but you told me, see, so you can't, I wouldn't say we don't believe them, but we go deeper than that. We we try to get to a point where we find out what really makes them go. And there's other factor here. If you've got a man and a woman and they both own the wealth, okay, and they're really different, one's really conservative and one's really aggressive, okay, we have to do some work on that mm-hmm. because they have an internal conflict as well, see? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're happily married, don't get me wrong, but on investments, they're different. How do you know if someone's like, how do you know if someone's telling the truth about whether it's what they did during the financial crisis and the, what they're investing? Mm-hmm. Or even when I, I hear you that you say you, y'all go deeper than just like, what would you do if you had a 20% decline or the market did? So how do you kind of discern? I, I imagine there's a lot of reading people in this. Well, I take a number with them usually. I said, look, you know, you've got $40 million, okay? And I'm, I'll come back in here next week, okay, and you have $28 million. Can you live with that? I'm giving you a dollar amount now. Forget about mm-hmm. 20% on that. You got 40. I'm coming back in telling you you got $28 million bucks. How do you feel about that? Can you? And, and I'm, and I, but I'm assuring you, that five years from now, you'll be doing okay. Are you okay? 90% of the people will say, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and a lot of them will say, no, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that, even though they think they are. They think they're aggressive. And, you know, so they don't, you know. And I also ask this question. If I'm talking to the wife or the husband, well, I ask the other spouse, how do you feel about that? Oh, my. Oh, no, no, I couldn't. We can't do that. Our family would be ruined. Mm-hmm. You know, then I got a different say I've got multiple problems here you have to work on, but you you have to ask more questions than just those basic questions about, you know, what do you, how do you feel about this? But you know, those questions they ask on Wall Street are all the same, all the same 20. But I ask a lot of questions. Like, tell me, tell me about how you grew up. Tell me about how your how parents did you what was money like in your family? When you grew up, okay, because that has big impact on people. Mm-hmm. And if they say, you know, we didn't have any money, then I know that they're going to start out pretty conservative. That's the way they think, you know. And you'll have to show them where they can own stocks and be okay, but not too much, but some. And if they say, no, we had everything we ever wanted. My family had a lot of money, and we blah blah blah, you know. And that's okay. I'm not knocking that thing. You've got to know where they came from, though. Or they say, you know, my, my my dad died, my mom raised four kids, and or you know, my parents got a divorce. I, you got to get into that because you'll figure out a little bit about. Okay, I kind of know what they are. They're thinking what they do. It's 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 more than just that one page form for yeah. sure. Going back to the balance portfolio, uh-huh. um, there's been a lot of talk about sixty forty is dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, a lot of people they know the sixty forty. Um, and I've heard recently from some guests, like, boosting their allocations to gold. What, how do your clients feel about something like gold? Because that's really popular with the folks who are watching and listening. Yeah. Well, you you can own some gold. The problem about gold is it doesn't cash flow. Mm-hmm. So I we look at gold as nothing more than a currency hedge. Okay. Now, we own about, in two of the three strategies we have, we own about 4% gold. That's all we would own, though, because you can't 
you you don't get cash flow off of it. So if it doesn't go up in price, you don't make any money. Now, uh, if you look worldwide right now, a lot of countries are buying gold, and I think they're trying to get away from the dollar, uh-huh. and that's probably a plus if you own gold. I'm not one of these conspiracy people, though, that think that everything's going to fold up, and if, you don't, if you've got gold, you can trade it. Well, if you stop and think about that, it's hard to do. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got a, I've got these gold coins that are, you know, now they're worth three thousand dollars a piece. Who's going to split that up for you? Um, and so, it's not, a, it's not as, but it's a good currency hedge. I think, I think that's why you own it. But we wouldn't own more than probably four percent of it. Got it. So what, what is a balanced portfolio these days? Because it sounds balance, like, y'all like yeah, cash balance center. is not just in in the financial. By the way, it's you know, it's I always ask people. Uh, my best investors that I learn a lot from have a little bit of a lot of things. They've got really good income-producing real estate. The oil and gas they have does well. You know, a lot of them have minerals. Uh, they own good. You know, they're good. They've got uh, good stock and bond investments, and they've got investments in private companies. They didn't make money in every one of them, but they know who. The key to investing in a private company is who is running the company. If I know who's running the company and I know they're really good, I'm probably going to make money in that company. If I don't know anything, which is one of the fallacies of Wall Street, is that you're third or fourth or fifth person removed. You have no idea who those private equity companies are going into. So uh, I always my best investors are balanced in that way. Okay, they they don't own they they own they have plenty of liquidity. Um, they own stocks. They own bonds. They own they own a lot of different things, but um, but by and large, they're in a controlled situation where they're not going to have something else control them. They aren't going to control this. And they do it by spreading it and really having enough liquidity, if you want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we covered it at the top, but we often talk about the recession outlook or the picture there. Are Are you more in the... Are y'all kind of gearing up more for a hard landing or? Well, I think I think every landing's hard when you're in mm-hmm. the middle of it. I think people keep talking about soft landing. I don't know that ever in my, I've been in Has business been as long as, yeah, yeah. When it's landing, it's, it's hard because things, business goes bad mm-hmm. or goes down. It doesn't necessarily go negative, but it goes bad. You know, you, you're, you're all your companies will be doing less than where the year before talking about private companies. And so, uh, yeah, we we really feel like that's what's right ahead of right now. I mean, we we think we're uh, in my quarterly call video call I did at um, in the first week in October. I said we're here. We're we're now coming into the worst, the really the the heavy duty jaws of this whole thing, and over the next three quarters. And I still think we are. I think this is where. Uh, if you've noticed how many companies have announced in the last two weeks, and they're saying, hey. And you go look at the transports, big harbinger. That's a leading indicator of the economy. Transport average is just getting murdered right now. Airlines are down. Truckers are down. I know trucking people are just parking a truck, parking the rigs. Yeah, because they're not moving all the goods and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. And they're, they're running you know, they're running third loads. They're just not going to run like that. No. You look at the cash freights, freight rate, you know, look freight rates, negative. Uh, all of that tells you where you're headed here for right now. And I, I get very positive when things are right, were cheap. And people always say, well, you've been a bear for the last couple of years. And I said, well, that's true. But 
So what? But it's, you're not positive yet. No, not really, because we, the, the worst mm-hmm. part's probably right ahead of us. Yeah. Most people don't realize this, but the worst part of a bear market is the last 25%. That's when you lose the most money. And that's where people hung on, buy more, hung on, buy more, and they finally get so frustrated, Julia, that they blow it out. <laughs> and that's where you don't want to be. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I've really enjoyed like getting to meet you in person yeah. and hear from you. Do you have any parting thoughts for the folks who are watching and listening? Anything that we did, didn't bring up in this conversation? You know, I feel sorry a bit for the small investor today. I think they get, uh, and I'm, I'm saying investors say less than $500,000. I think they get poor advice. Uh, they just throw them in these 401ks and just pick a number, you know. They don't really think about their personal. So it's hard for them to get good advice. I feel for that. But if I had to advise them right now and people with a lot of money, most of our clients have a lot of money, but I would say, don't worry about keeping liquidity right now. Liquidity is probably your best investment for the next nine months. And we'll find out if that's correct or not, but so far it has been. And, uh, you know, if I look back and say, okay, I know people don't realize this, but if you go back and look, the markets today are lower than they were two years ago in 21, right today, S&P. Mm-hmm. So it was the NASDAQ. Um, but people are not thinking about that because you had a rally between April and July, and they get all hung up in the mind. But we're not in a bull market. Yeah. So that's where that's where I would caution people, don't worry about holding liquidity. It may be the best thing you do right now. Yeah. And then even just going back to all the books you've written, uh, do you find that that gives you more clarity too? Because I imagine like being able to write down all of these mm-hmm. thoughts of like what's going on or what's transpiring. Yeah. Have you always been a writer or someone who writes these down? Well, I do write. I write every day, just personally write every day. But because um, I'm grateful, I write a lot of things I'm grateful for because mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for everything. But um, one of the things I would say to you that I find is that when I have a topic in my mind, like I wrote a book a number of years ago called 20 Million and Broke that about people get a lot of money and they just, they spend it the wrong way. They go broke, you know, and I've seen it. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. And I rewrote that book. It'll be out in a couple of months, but I, it's, it's 12 or 14 years later. So it's 30 million broke now, mm-hmm. but it had some other stories in there. We, we have some pretty interesting stories about money losses, but I always think about a topic, and a topic on my mind right now, and I'm going to write this book next year, okay? I've already got the notes for it and the outline. is is called uh, The Curse of Second-Generation Wealth. Oh, that's a good um, topic. If you talk to anybody with a lot of money, all of my people between, say, $50 million and a billion, one of the main topics of mine for them is, what about my children? You know, what What about them? Half of them have been raised the wrong way with that money, and, and half have been raised the right way. Mm-hmm. By the way, there's no perfect way, but um, that's the number one thing that's on their mind. And um, it's the reason I'm going to write about it is because I see so many eras by second, third, and fourth generation wealth. And if you look through time, you'll see that most most big wealth gets lost over that third or fourth generation. It's gone, okay? They had a lot of money, but they don't have it now. And I talk to people all the time. Oh, my granddad had a lot of money. What mm-hmm. happened to it? Well, my uncle was running the business around in the ground or whatever. 
things like that. And I, but that's what has that's that's what I hope to write about next year. I think you should as a as a parent. Uh-huh. How do you think about? Um, I mean, from like just your perspective, maybe even talking to other parents uh-huh. with money raising kids and making sure that they have that like work ethic and still yeah. want to go out and work and, and have contribute to society. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, no matter how much money you have, you should not give, in my opinion, at least I've watched this a long time. You should not give those children the life of Riley when they're going up. Cause that's what they'll get used to. Okay. So don't fly in private. All right. Don't, don't let them go lay out by the country club swimming pool every summer or go to France or Germany, wherever. Travel the world. Here's a way to work it, okay? They got to work. I'm, I'm convinced of this because I did it my own self, but you have to put those kids to work, okay? And not working for you coming down there to your company and kinking trash out, okay? I'm talking about working for somebody where they get to see the real world, somebody screams at them, you know, whatever. Okay, things happen. When my children were young, I took cash money and paid my friends with businesses to hire them because they were too young for insurance. And I'd say, you give them a money every Friday. And they started, both of them started when they were 12 years old. And so they always had a job. And after they got up to be 15, they had to have their own job. And they, I was not going to let them. I could have. You're not going to go... To Europe, and you're not going to go travel the way, whatever. You, you know what? You're going to be working. You got plenty of time in your life to travel and do that thing. But I see parents, such a mistake, by the way, that all of a sudden a child is, is you know, doing nothing. They're flying private, you know, going to the, the big house in Aspen, spending two months up there, then they're going over here. And you look at that and you think, what experience did you have to help your self-esteem? These people don't have any self-esteem. And the only way you get self-esteem is to be, is to be self-achieving. You have to understand that. And I love wealthy families that do this. And they, they're, they're out there. And they, they, they did not let their kids know much about their wealth. I'm a big disbeliever in all these people that want to save financial planners. Well, yeah, I want to bring them in when they're 15 years old and tell them all about your wealth. I, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. You really don't. What you want to do is grow them as regular people, having regular problems, having regular bummed out days in their life, so that when they're 40 years old and they do get a lot of your money, they can say, you know what, I'm going to take care of this. Yeah, well, that's that. That's the answer. But that's my answer. Okay. But I've seen a lot of it. Well, Ted, I like your answer. And I think you should totally write that book. And I can't wait to read it. And I have to say, I've enjoyed just listening to you and learning from you and mm-hmm. hearing your different insights and perspectives. And it's just been an absolute treat. So Ted Oakley, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, Julia, I'm happy for your success. Like I said, you know, you've got a great show. So a lot of great people come on and people should listen in. Well, thank you. You're too kind. Thank you again, Ted. You bet.